I don't know if there's any Office fans here other than Lee Ellen, but a quote from The Office kind of stood out to me. I don't know, I haven't watched The Office recently, but I was thinking about the series finale when Andy Bernard's character ends by, and, and if you're not familiar with The Office, he spends the, pretty much the entire series talking about his glory days back in Cornell and spending time with all of his friends at Cornell and the good old days. And at the end of the series, he leaves this office environment to go back to Cornell, and he says, I'm still talking about my glory days with all of my old pals at the office. He says, I wish there were a way to know that we were in the good old days before we left them. I think about that quite a bit as I'm raising my children, and um, I begrudgingly get up on time every morning with them because they wake up like clockwork. I'm in the midst of the glory days. Sometimes we need the contrast of things past to realize that we have moved on, but that the glory days, they might be behind us. But that shouldn't rob us of the joy of the glory days that we're in now. I say that because as we've moved through this series, through the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians, titled The Old You, our focus has been on looking at the old self. Now that is, before a person is saved, who are they? We do that, and I think Paul does this in his writing with the purpose that the contrast, the stark division between the old you and the new you would be so evident that we would see what we actually have taken possession of. That is our salvation. I've been surprised as we've been going through this study at how tremendously impactful it has been to spend time meditating on God's grace and what He has provided for us. As we uh, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, I'm overwhelmed in looking at the old you and the old me and who the new me is. As we continue to study this, I pray that you would come along with me and that you would be equally as bewildered and awestruck and amazed at what God's grace truly means for us. It stirs an attitude of worship in us that is genuine. It makes us and it forces us to really gather what we're looking at when we read from God's Word and to understand the Holy Spirit who is interpreting things to us, to sit in awe, to really be in fear of the Lord. And also, it stirs within us a motivation to see others no longer suffering in a state that we found ourselves when we were the old you. That is, as we've discussed the past two weeks, desperate and in need of a Savior and oblivious to God's greater plan. We could add to that this week that we are not just desperate, we were not just oblivious, but that we were unsecured. That is a focus that we find this morning as we look at the last phrase of Paul's lengthy doxology. If you will, and I hope it comes as no surprise, Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Our focus this morning will be on verses 11 through 14, which is the last part of this long running sentence that began all the way back in verse 3. And I've tried to emphasize that in the original Greek, there's no punctuation. And so while your Bibles might have periods and commas and semicolons and all sorts of helpful aids that help you in understanding what is written here, this is one flowing thought about how great what God has done is for us. And so uh, I don't just want to read verses 11 through 14. I'd rather read the whole thought. And we'll begin in verse 3 this morning, all the way down to verse 14. Before we do that, I'll pray, but I ask that you be ready to read along with me as I read out loud. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning, this time to worship you. God, I pray that you would aid us in our study of your word, that we would have understanding and insight into what it is you have for us to take away. God, I Pray that you would help us to see where we fail and need you. And I pray that you would help us to know how to apply the truths that we are going to read about this morning to our lives. Lord, open the eyes of our heart that we might behold the awesome truths in your law. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. And the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, who were, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Looking at that entire running sentence, there's something that I feel we can point out now. And it's something that's significant for us whenever we study the Bible. Paul starts in verse 3 with this flowing thought, which is, it is an evident it, it, I called it a doxology, which means that it's a, it's a praise of God. He's stopping in the middle of this introduction to this letter to write to his friends to say, praise be to God. Something interesting happens, though. He's writing to a group of believers, and he wants them to take something from it. But he begins with, blessed be the Father. He doesn't start with you, and he doesn't start with me. When we get to verse 11, there's a major shift taking place. 
We move from no longer looking at, at just what God has done, but now looking at what we are doing in it. If you just look through here for a moment, you'll see what I'm talking about. In verses 3 through 10, there's a pattern of God doing something. God is lavishing before us. He is gracing us. He is providing for us. He is making known to us. The action all comes from God. In verse 11, that changes. Now we are obtaining. You see, the pattern is we begin with what God has done and we move on to what we are doing in response. Let me tell you why that's significant. Oftentimes in religion, Christianity, spirituality, people go on and they have this concept that their understanding of God comes about in their pursuit to understand creation. That's not the case. The God of the Bible is very different in that the God of the Bible is actively pursuing us, revealing Himself to us. And the model that Paul takes in this passage gives us that very example. God has blessed, or rather that we're blessing God because of what He's done. He's given us Christ in Him. We, he set the foundation of the world. He set us blameless. He's predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. He's lavished wisdom and um, knowledge to us, and in Him we have obtained an inheritance. God has done all of these things, and then what do we do? Our relationship with God is a response to what He's already done, what He's already established. This is remarkable. First, we see that we do have an obligation to respond. Let's look at this for a second. I wonder, how is it that we describe salvation? And there's lots of words evangelicals have come up with over the years. To be saved. Think about Forrest Gump. Lieutenant Dan asked Forrest, Forrest, have you found Jesus yet? And Forrest responded, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. Be born again? We have Jesus to credit for that, but even Nicodemus, a scholar and a spiritual leader, a member of the Sanhedrin in his day, wasn't able to grasp that meaning. The truth is, when we talk about salvation, it's not as cut and dry as we like to make it. What is it? It's an inheritance. It's something that we get to take possession of. And again, we find the phrase that we talked about last week, in Him. It's in Christ. It's through being in, abiding in Christ and being overwhelmed and overcome by Christ that we are able to inherit. Because Jesus, as the Son, has an inheritance. And when we are in Him, we are co-inheritors of that. This is astonishing. What an astonishing truth. And what's it all for? Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
I think what's most remarkable about this is when we talk about salvation, and especially when we talk about it being an inheritance, it is more than just a forgiveness of sins, but it's actually obtaining something that we have no business being a part of. It's actually taking possession of something that we aren't even capable of being a part of unless we are abiding in Christ and in possession of Christ. Now, the truth is this. Salvation comes about, and it comes about because of our desperate need of a Savior. Every person being born a sinner has a... uh, They deserve to be judged, and the right judgment for every person is hell. That's not not a, a harsh punishment. That is rightly deserved through the forgiveness of the blood. Salvation comes about, and it starts to provide for us an atonement, a covering, A protection so much that when God regards us and He looks at our sinful estate, He doesn't see us. We talked about this last week. He puts out of mind everything in our lives because all He sees is the righteousness of Christ when we abide in Him. Why did He do it? Because it's even more than that. He's also promising in us an inheritance. He's calling us adopted sons. Why did you do it, God? And God says, according to the counsel of His will. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. God, why did you do it? God says, because I loved you. And I keep beating at this passage because I just don't feel like that's a sufficient answer. God, I get it. You love me. Why did you love me? Because I loved you. That's the answer. That's the end of it. That's as far as this logical train goes. God, why did you save me? Because I loved you. Yeah, but why do you love me? Because I love you. I can't help but be awestruck at that. Why did you choose me? If we go back to the Old Testament, when God chose Israel, He tells us in Deuteronomy 7, He didn't choose them because they were great in number, because they were more fierce and more powerful than any other nation on earth. He says, in fact, I chose you because you were less. I chose you because I wanted to. I chose you because I loved you. Yeah, but why? Because I love you. What a thought. Why do you do all of this according to your will? What is is your great plan? Just looking at this passage, we can see that there's more to it. There's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Verse 11, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, God is at work in doing something that is magnificent. I mean, just that concept of uniting all things together in Him, I 
I'm awestruck. To, if I just step outside of this and my kind of bewilderment that I have with God's immeasurable love for me, and I just look at the world, I can't find anything that is in unity with one another. And I, I think that's true for you too. I mean, I don't think anyone wakes up and goes to work and, and sings Kumbaya with your coworkers and says, well, this is going to be a great day. Reality is tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up to 243-something emails that I've ignored. Three of them are going to make me want to quit. Two of them are going to make me want to call in sick. There's no unity. I'm sure there's no unity for you either. By the time I get done with it all, driving home from work, I might turn on the radio, listen to the news, catch up on what's going on in the world, and I'll hear about this going on in this place, this going on in this place, political divide here. There's no unity. Can't look at this and not just think to ourselves, man, somebody's got to fix this. God, why don't you fix this? Why don't you fix this? Surely he's going to do something about it. The Bible says here that he has a plan for the fullness of time, the completion of time, when everything comes to culmination, to unite all things in him. That he's providing for us an inheritance, something that we can take possession of, that we exist and that we abide in Christ and that all of this is done according to the counsel of his will. God, that's great. Do something about it. How about now? I thought about that and I thought I must be the first person in the history of the world to ever ask that question. God, why don't you do something about it now? I say that because I realize that all of you here this morning, worshiping alongside me, studying this passage alongside me, well, you've never once asked, God, why don't you do something to fix all of this that I see? And so I want to take you along for the ride. Just pretend that you had asked that question. There was somebody that asked it before you and before me. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk, Ask that question, looking at the world, God, why don't you fix this? And God responded and he said, well, you know what? I'm going to fix it. And you're not going to like the way that I'm going to fix it. In fact, what God told Habakkuk was, I'm going to raise up enemies around you. That's going to be part of the way that I, in the fullness of all time, unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Habakkuk responds, Habakkuk 3, 17, 18, if you're interested. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in my salvation. And all of this disunity, as we marvel at what God has done for us in His grace, I hear echoing in the background, God cares more about your holiness than He does your happiness. This inheritance that we get to obtain, existing in Christ, He cares more about your holiness than he does your happiness. 
God's plan isn't to make our life now tranquil or peaceful or to answer all of our bewildered questions. (coughs) But look in verse 12. But that in order that we might be to the praise of His glory. That we would see ourselves and that we'd be able to see our lives in a bigger picture. That the hundreds of emails that await for us on Monday and the rigor that comes with living life, that God has an inheritance for us that we have not yet taken possession of, but that we get to look forward to obtaining through His grace. I'd ask then, we've looked at what God is giving us through salvation or what we might call it, and we've called it an inheritance, why He's done it, because that's His will. How are we supposed to obtain it? It goes on in verse 13. In Him, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Look there, there's two verbs that are taking place. That first we heard the word of our salvation, the gospel. Heard. Not read, not conceptualized, not figured out on our own, but we heard. Look back at the model of the early church. What did the apostles do when they first were indwelled with the Holy Spirit? They went out and they preached. The only reason there's any saint here this morning is because somebody proclaimed a truth to you that you needed to hear. A truth to you that begins with your need. Trying to figure out what it means to have a relationship with God and trying this way and that way and and maybe gathering around with people who are interested in the same thing as you and maybe even have an understanding that there's an eternity, that heaven and hell is a real place. Maybe even just realizing that everything in this world didn't come about by mistake, but God, in the beginning of everything before there was matter, decided that He would form a world and that He would place you in it. There's no figuring it out. God's already told us the story. He's already revealed to us the truth. You want what's different about Christianity? No one's figuring this out. We've got a guidebook given to us because God is showing us. He's opening our eyes to the truth of eternity. And you want to know more about that? Well, it takes somebody showing it to you, doesn't it? I said the only reason there's only saints here this morning is because somebody proclaimed the truth to you. A preacher came to you, maybe not a preacher like this, probably more handsome, and, but a, a preacher came to you and they told you the truth. Your heart began to be softened and you began to realize there's more to this than just a book that I'm going to sit down and study. Oh, this is divinely inspired. And the truth was proclaimed to you. Your heart was softened. And you realized that there's depravity born into every person, that you're part of every person, you're no different. You realize that the rightful judgment for you is an eternity in hell. Your heart was softened to that more. 
Not just realizing, oh yeah, I deserve that. But I mean, this is the, the contrite confession. Yeah, I deserve that. I don't know if you caught the difference. There's a difference in my mind. And you realize that God had this plan. And here's how far it stretches back. Look at the pronouns in our passage for a second. It starts, in we. In you. In us. Paul's writing to a group of Gentile believers in the city of Ephesus. And he's a Jew. And it began with Israel. God chose Abraham. And that small little number, he said, this is my chosen people. I'm going to protect them and I'm going to provide for them and I'm going to love them and I'm going to nurture them and I'm going to raise them and all of these different things. And he does it so that we get to this point when Jesus comes and Paul says, it started in we who have obtained this inheritance as adopted sons, so that in you, a group of believers can be grafted into that inheritance. That this isn't just something for a small group, but that this great grace of God that is bewildering us is available to everyone and anyone who would put their faith in Christ. that they would reach out and obtain this inheritance. That they would find themselves abiding in Christ. That we would hear the gospel of our salvation and that we would believe in him. And when we've done that, that's not the end of the story. There's a lifetime of growth. There's an old you that we get to look back at. Like God, with no recollection or memory, we can look at it and cast away all guilt. We can look at it and we can say, I've moved on from that and that's not who I am, that we are new creations born again in Christ as adopted sons and daughters who are taking possession and obtaining the inheritance that God has given to us. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is something to marvel at. What does it mean to seal something? The farmer knows that you put a brand on livestock and that represents ownership. You're sealed. God sealed you. In the new you, you've been sealed, and that denotes ownership. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Peter writes this. You are a chosen nation, a, chosen nation, a royal priesthood for God's own possession. By the way, what's interesting about Peter writing that is that was originally said to Israel, but he writes it to a Gentile group of believers who are able to share in the inheritance of what God has given them. sealed you. 
What else do we seal? Things that we don't want to leak out? You know that real salvation, when it's been obtained, is sealed like the seal on the top of a medicine bottle. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot leak out. It's there forever. There is no corrupting it. it. It doesn't perish. You can't spoil it. And it cannot escape you. It's yours. Because you are His. And of course, the Holy Spirit that seals us is also the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Because while salvation might be positional, and that all we have to be is in Christ instead of outside of Christ, it is also progressive. Which means on this side of heaven, we all have to look forward to a progression of our spiritual maturing, our devotion to Christ, our abiding in Christ, our provision through Christ, everything that we have until one day it's perspective. Looking forward to the day that God will give us possession of the inheritance that we have obtained. Again, to the praise of His glory. I really have been awestruck by this passage and looking at what God has done for us and what He's provided for us and, and why He's done it and with the purpose that He's done it and the intricacy at which He's planned it. It is amazing to see what God has done through the history of time and what He's doing for the fullness of all time. I don't even have the words to, to marvel at it. That He sealed us. My question I think this morning is on that last line of our passage that all of this would be done to the praise of His glory. How is it that we are living life to the praise of His glory? I, I mentioned kind of the monotony of life and what comes along with it, the disunity of everything that's there. How are we living through the monotony, the struggle and the strife, the disunity to the praise of His glory? That's a difficult question, I think, to answer and a difficult question to respond to. And I don't ask it so that you would struggle with it but I guess mainly so that I'm not alone in struggling with it. What does it mean 
that we would live life to the praise of God's glory. That in everything that we would see that it's not happened by happenstance, but it's happened through providence. When we wake up to those 243 emails, I think we go at it with zeal. When we find ourselves discouraged, we lift up with zeal. After all, anchoring on to the hope that Christ has set before us and the promise that he's established for it because he's also testified to the veracity of the hope that we have in giving us this Holy Spirit. There's a promise that testifies that a person has been saved. It happens once, and it is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's easy to be misguided or to think, and whatever it is that maybe our salvation isn't trustworthy or it isn't something that we can establish, but I promise when we've been saved and we've been sealed, there is no doubt. As we've been through this series, is this the third week? We've described the old you. There's no words that can come close to describing the old you that a person who is in an old self can possibly understand. The reality is, you have to be in the new you to see just how depraved, just how oblivious, and just how insecure we are in the old self. I want to invite you this morning to evaluate, to ask yourself the question, where am I? And realize that coming in Christ is as simple as being in Christ. I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit and plead with you. I can't soften your heart. Only God can do that. But if you've heard the truth of the gospel presented to you, you're deliberating, or you have questions, maybe the question that we need to hear is, will you spend eternity in heaven, or will you spend eternity in hell? I'll ask our worship team to come up, and we'll sing.